It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, January 19th, 2022. Welcome in. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson, Fox News contributor, townhall.com political editor, and someone who's just generally honored and thrilled that you're here every day alongside for the program, wherever you're listening from across this great country or even around the world, GuyBensonShow.com. That is our website. You can listen live there, all sorts of different ways to listen, including on our affiliates across the country, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free if you can't listen between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. On today's edition of the show, Britt Hume will join me later on this hour. His take on the news of the day, perhaps a preview of what we are expecting in our middle hour, the next hour here, Around 4 p.m. Eastern, President Biden is expected to give a formal press conference at the White House. He has not done a formal, solo presidential press conference at the White House since last March. It's been a minute. He hasn't given a press conference, period, solo, I believe, in 78 days. So he doesn't do this very often. We will cover that Q&A here on the show live as it happens. And I will react sort of strategically from time to time throughout the Q&A as I see fit here on the show, perhaps some real-time reaction or fact-checking from yours truly. So that's our middle hour of the program. will be largely devoted to that and the live-breaking coverage there. Reaction afterwards from Josh Krasauer of National Journal, one of the more honest, middle-of-the-road, sensible analysts out there. I don't really know what his politics are, which is a testament to him. He just calls them as he sees them, does great reporting. We will get his thoughts on the press conference as well. That's coming up later. Also, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican of Tennessee. We will pick her brain on China, the Olympics, and also the topic that we're going to open with here in a moment, the attempt by Democrats in the Senate to blow up the rules in order to ram through a total Democrat-only takeover of our elections. They don't have the votes, but they're going to try, and apparently they're going to hold this high-stakes, high-decibel, likely-to-fail, however, vote later this evening on the nuclear option, which they were all against, almost all of them, strongly against, just a few short years ago. That's coming up in just a moment. First, though... A Fox News alert. Stats on COVID. The case count in the U.S., 67.7 million. That's confirmed cases. The real number is much higher, orders of magnitude. The death toll with or of COVID in the United States, 853,740. There is some good news on this whole front. David Lee and Hart in the Times writing with Omicron, Cases are starting to plunge, which is what we saw 
in South Africa, in the U.K., a very big spike and then a precipitous decline. We are now on the downslope, and it's a really steep one in lots of areas of this country, which is great. And all those tests that the Biden administration are finally mailing out for free, they're going to come a week and a half from now when the spike in all likelihood will be over. So that's uh, government competence and timing at its very finest. Also, we are still seeing more and more evidence that Omicron is less virulent and severe, much less likely to kill people. That's great. And then there's continued protection against death and very severe illness from the vaccines and the boosters, plus the importance of natural immunity. Seems like we could very soon be collectively turning a major corner on the pandemic, shifting into a sort of endemic situation, if only our leaders will let us, with the experts and other special interest groups, some of them aligned against that for various reasons. So uh, we will bring you up to speed on all of that information as it comes in. We give you the stats every single day. We will have more to say on covid on the show today and just as long as we need to as we cover this topic. It's been ubiquitous in our lives for years. In the meantime, here in Washington, D.C., we are expecting likely later a vote on the Senate floor to blow up the Senate rules and nuke the filibuster. And the Democrats say this issue of voting rights is so important that they must do the thing that they said would be a doomsday for democracy when the power dynamics were reversed. The Democrats always unilaterally escalate. Then they get very angry when their own tactics and short-sighted stupidity comes back to bite them. And they are on the brink of doing the same thing, or at least trying to, but in, I think, a very lasting and damaging way on the legislative filibuster which Schumer, again, has called a vital guardrail for democracy that should be protected by a firewall, should not be touched. The vast majority of Senate Democrats all signed a letter in 2017 insisting to Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, back when the Republicans were in charge, that the legislative filibuster not be altered or changed or touched in any way, shape, or form. And now almost every single one of those same people on the Democratic side have flip-flopped because they're in the majority. And their excuse is voting rights. That's what they claim is at stake, even though that's not true. No one is being denied the right to vote in the United States. No one's even having it get harder to vote, except if you're comparing it to pandemic emergency measures. But, like, going back to 2019, like the previous status quo or in some cases more generous than the previous status quo, is not voter suppression. It is not the end of voting rights. It is not the death of democracy murdered by the filibuster or whatever they're saying. It's so ridiculous on its face. It's interesting. I made this point on Special Report last night. Gallup did a poll in late 2021, the very end of last year, and they asked people about the number one priority facing the country. And they had a whole bunch of issues, economic and otherwise. Of course, pandemic-related and social issues. They really, it was probably like a few dozen options that they gave people. Electoral reform and voting rights, 
that attracted as that option less than one half of one percent of the respondents cited that as the top priority of the country less than half of a percent and yet this is what we've seen from the democrats in the last couple of weeks the president thundering about jim crow and bull connor and george wallace jefferson davis that was last week Nancy Pelosi, we played the clip yesterday. Oh, the founding fathers are weeping. They're weeping for democracy. We must do this. I mean, just the overheated rhetoric is wild. I mean, I know hyperbole is what we get in politics, and the left makes everything like, you know, cataclysm, just catastrophe right around the corner. Remember when the Republicans just cut taxes across the board for everyone? And the economy took off? The Democrats literally called that Armageddon. They said, Pelosi called it the end of the world and said thousands of people would die from tax cuts. So it's like they they run out of room. They run out of real estate with this crazy stuff that they say. The American people are looking around like, what the hell are these psychos talking about? People are going to be able to vote. We can all vote. This isn't 1964, 1963. What are they talking about? Well, what they're doing is channeling one half of one percent of the American people, which has a much louder, that's a hugely amplified voice on places like Twitter, and these people all live in fear of these screaming, screeching, hysterical activists who will be on to the next thing. Right? The, the fate of civilization and the lives of our citizens will all depend on whatever the next progressive thing is very soon once this vote fails. Politico also did a poll on these issues. And they also found that voting rights, quote unquote, is not a top concern, not even close for the American people. They said, OK, they pushed them further. All right. You might not think it's a big concern, but what should Washington do? on voting rights and elections reform, and they gave them a few different options. You know which option won? Which option had the most response of the people after after they were forced to think about voting rights as if it were a crisis? In this poll from Politico, the number one response from the American people was none of the above. <laughs> I mean, you cannot be more out of touch than the Democrats are right now. The reason they're doing this is because they see it not only as a way to do what the base demands, and again, it's just like these left-wing lunatics running the show with all the Democrats looking over their shoulders. Is it okay now? Are you happy with me? Are you not going to hound me or come to my house? Because they see what they do to cinema. They see what they do to mansion. The bullying, the totally insane, over-the-top, beyond-the-pale tactics, chasing people into bathrooms, showing up at their homes. This is what the hardcore left does. And you have the inmates running the asylum and the Democratic parties just completely cave to these folks. Even though the actual mainstream of their own party were the folks that nominated Joe Biden. The crazies that they're responding to, almost every single one of them wanted someone other than Joe Biden to be the nominee. Warren or Sanders or something like that. They lost, but they're calling the shots. The other reason is the Democrats, they don't have the votes. But if they did... This would be an opportunity for them to wield full control over a rewrite of the way that we do elections in America. Again, with no input whatsoever from the Republican Party. They worry about democracy and people losing faith in the system and the process and believing conspiracies. And they're 
but their their solution to this is to do a democrat only party line vote to completely blow up the system while blowing up the senate with no republican votes at all changing the rules of the senate to ram the thing through and thrust it through get rid of photo id for voting require ballot harvesting is something that would be allowed forcing every single one of you with your taxpayer dollars to fund the campaigns of people like AOC. It's like they they cooked this up in a lab to make things worse in a lot of ways. And they're dressing it up as democracy and voting rights. It's nothing of the sort. And some of this is just comical and insulting, the arguments that they're making, especially on the filibuster where it's suddenly racist again. I saw Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott, black Republican from South Carolina. I mentioned that he's black because the Democrats filibustered and killed his police reform bill in 2020. And now they're saying he's a racist and a segregationist or whatever because he doesn't want to end the tool that they just used to torpedo his legislation on a civil rights issue. It's just sort of it's like through the looking glass, this stuff. Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader underscored how preposterous and unserious and clownish these people are. This was in a speech yesterday, cut 25. Democrats want the American people to believe the filibuster was not a Jim Crow relic in 2005. Was not even a Jim Crow relic, a Jim Crow relic uh, in 2020. Just miraculously became a Jim Crow relic in 2021. Briefly stopped being a Jim Crow relic last Thursday, but it's now back to being a Jim Crow relic this week. I mean, you have to laugh. Right? They turned on a, just totally on a dime, turned on a dime from we must protect this vital guardrail with a firewall of democracy to prevent the rule of the majority and doomsday for democracy and dictatorship and banana republic stuff to we must do exactly that thing in order to protect democracy or something. And all of a sudden, it's super racist, and it's Jim Crow, Jim Crow, Jim Crow. And as McConnell points out, then there was a brief break. There's a, a hiatus, a little vacation from Jim Crow last Thursday when they did a filibuster on the Democratic side, and then right back to Jim Crow. And I guess they're going to vote on this tonight. And some of these quote, moderates who haven't taken a position are starting to be forced due to these circumstances to say what they actually believe. Mark Kelly, Arizona, total phony moderate, does whatever Chuck Schumer tells him to do. Surprise, surprise, he's going to vote to blow up the filibuster. He didn't want to say it, now he's been forced to say it. Pay attention, Arizona. Throw that guy out of office. The vote's apparently coming within hours. Could be coming within hours. We'll be watching very closely. Mitt Romney has had absolutely enough of these people. He's had it up to here. He gave another, by his standards, brutal speech for the Democrats. We want to play you some of that as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
the president and some of my Democratic colleagues have ventured deep into hysteria. Their cataclysmic predictions, her failing to support their entirely partisan election reform, worked out entirely by themselves, without any input whatsoever from any single person on my side of the aisle, they're far beyond the pale. Senator Mitt Romney of Utah gave a tough speech last week slapping down President Biden for those smears that he uncorked in Georgia in that speech in a state where it's much easier to vote and vote early, for example, than it is in Delaware or ever was when he was getting elected in Delaware over and over again, Joe Biden, for years. And Romney, again, has been listening to the Democrats and their excuses for trying to blow up the filibuster and totally change our election laws on their own. And he just can't believe what he's hearing. And this is a guy who's done the country over party thing that the Democrats and the left always demands of Republicans. He's done it in spades. He voted twice to convict Trump on impeachment. Twice. He co-sponsored and helped shepherd through the bipartisan infrastructure bill. He's walked the walk, and now he's looking around and saying, what is wrong with you guys? Which is exactly how the American people are feeling based on the polling that we just talked about in the previous segment. Romney went on, clearly angry about the race baiting, and once again returning fire at President Biden with specifics. Cut 27. Now, I respect Democrats who disagree with my point of view. I hope they'll offer me the same respect. People who want voter ID are not racists. People who don't want federal funding of campaigns aren't Bull Connor. And people who insist that vote drop boxes be monitored aren't Jefferson Davis. It's wild. It's breathtaking that these things have to be said. But based on the screeching on the left based on a completely manufactured crisis used now as a pretext to try to end the rules in the Senate and minority rights in the Senate and then change our entire election system on a partisan basis using so-called remedies that they've proposed for years using other excuses. They've just changed the justification. It's crazy to watch. And it seems like some of the only Democrats not on crazy pills are the ones being besieged by these left-wing activists ahead of the vote. Brit Hume coming up next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com. It's our website here at the show. Podcast is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. That's on demand when the broadcast ends between 3 and 6 p.m. That's the live airing, and then you can get it in podcast form if you so choose. GuyBensonShow.com. With us is Britt Hume, senior political analyst at Fox News Channel. Britt, welcome back. Thank you, Guy. Glad to be with you. We have the president 
teed up for just about 25 minutes from now if he's on time. Sometime in the next hour, he's going to give his first formal press conference in quite some time. Your overall thoughts heading into it? Well, I don't expect a major reset in terms of policy or attitude. What I expect is a defense of the administration's achievements uh, and not a lot of talk and, and less than until he's questioned about him about the difficulties he's had. Uh, I think the White House and obviously the president as well believe that there are significant achievements that have been uh, underreported and underemphasized. And so they're, I'm not sure that under normal circumstances it's the best idea to put this particular president out because he's had difficulty in extemporaneous <laughs> discourse. But he's still got the biggest megaphone in town, if not the biggest in the country. So I think they're trying to get this stuff out there and on the record is the best way they can. Brett, I want to ask you about the news media. It's pretty amazing. I mean, it shouldn't be shocking or surprising, but it seems like every time they do it, I still kind of scratch my head a bit that some people can be this shameless. But the Democrats have this uncanny ability to just sort of assert facts, and I use that term very broadly or loosely, or will a narrative into existence, and the media just sort of runs with the narrative, or at least the fundamental underpinnings of the narrative, as the basis for the questions that they ask. And they'll challenge Democrats who aren't far enough to the left, and they'll challenge Republicans as if what the Democrats are saying in the moment is the truth. Again, not a new phenomenon, but on so-called voting rights and elections reform, they're asking questions of Joe Manchin and Mitch McConnell and others as if citizens' ability to vote is going to be obstructed somehow unless the Democrats are able to kill the filibuster and pass this partisan plan. For example, in Cut 23, here's the question posed by a reporter to Senator Manchin and part of his response. What do you say to voters of color who say that your uh, inability or your obstruction of the voting rights? I'm not. There's no obstruction whatsoever. But there are a lot of people out there who are saying that you're making it so that they're not going to be able to vote in the next election. They, the, the, the laws there, the rules are there, and basically the government. The government will stand behind them and make sure they have a right to vote. We have and that. he goes on for a bit, Britt, but the question is that people are saying, oh, if you don't do this stuff, they won't be able to vote in the next election. McConnell was pushed on the exact same talking point earlier today. He shot back. This was cut 30. What's your message for voters of color who are concerned that without the John L. Lewis Voting Rights Act, they're not going to be able to vote in the midterm? Well, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. A recent survey, uh, 94% of Americans thought it was easy to vote. Uh, This is not a problem. Turnout is up, biggest turnout since 1900. Um, it's, it's simply they're being sold a, a, a bill of goods to support a democratic effort to federalize elections. As Senator Blunt pointed out, this goes back 20 years. The excuses change from time to time, but this has been a Democratic Party goal for decades. Yep, and I've made that point in the opening monologue earlier. But, Britt, I mean, the questions from the reporters are, and they always put it on others, right? What do you say to people who say that they won't be able to vote in the future unless you do these things, like kill the filibuster and federalize elections? I mean, 
I guess kudos to McConnell for making logical, fact-based points in response. But to me, the answer is that is a, a totally insane lie. Well, the Democrats, uh, the, the media have been taking their cues for the Democrats for as long as I can remember. That goes back decades. It's worse now, however. And whatever the whatever uh, Democrats on the Hill or wherever are putting out, that's where reporters go in terms of how they question things and the approach uh, that they take to the issues at hand. And it's it's really much much more intense now and worse than I've ever seen it. Those two examples you pointed out are striking, not least because it was virtually the same question to both men. Yes, uh, almost word for word. So that you know, the example is 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 appropriate. Uh, the answers I think from both senators was were pretty good and pretty convincing. Um, and you know what I'd like to see is uh, those statistics cited by McConnell used as a basis for questions to people like you know Chuck Schumer and even Joe Biden. Yeah, and when they are pushed, which is rare, but I know a couple of reporters pressed a couple of the Democrats yesterday on some of this stuff and their hypocrisy, for example, on the filibuster. And the Democrats got very, very cranky and sort of lashed out. You're not supposed to ask us those questions. We're supposed to do and say whatever we want for our power in the moment. You're supposed to go along with it. What are you doing? Are you new around here? I mean, that's sort of like the attitude that sometimes journalists get if they aren't fully on board with the tribe, with the team. And Brit, to me, to take it a step further, and I'm not sure if you'll agree with this, and I'm not sure I fully agree with it, but I'm starting to see more conservatives wonder aloud about it. And uh, curious on your thoughts, we have heard now for months and months and months that efforts to undermine democracy or faith in democracy uh, is a deep threat to democracy and it's you know really antithetical to the American way and un-American and all this stuff and that's fine fair enough I tend to agree but here we have the Democrats inventing conjuring this huge piece of misinformation that without doing exactly what they say we need to do and getting rid of photo ID and enshrining ballot harvesting and federally funding elections, all this stuff, unless we do all of that and break the rules of the Senate to get it through with no Republican support, then people aren't going to be able to vote. And they're almost suggesting that the elections will be rigged in the future. It's like they're building in their own trust-eroding excuses if they get their clocks cleaned in November. Well, we we live in an age of exaggeration and an era of exaggeration, so that nothing is ever, um, you know, making the election a little more difficult for some people to vote. You could make that argument if you wanted to. I don't think it's a very good argument, but everything is carried to the to the element extreme. Uh, I ran into John Meacham, the former Newsweek correspondent, historian now, sometime Biden speechwriter, uh, the other day, and we were talking about January sixth, and he described. He said. Uh, I, I said I thought the language that was in the in that Biden speech when he was likening opponents of the voting rights bill to, you know, the, to the voting rules bill really to Bull Connor and and Jefferson Davis that I thought that was you know that had gotten people pretty riled up. And he said, "Well, you're talking about January 6th. You're talking about the sacking of the Capitol." And a lot of people say that and believe that. Well, if the Capitol had been sacked, which means you know plundered. Um, 
We wouldn't have been able to have later the same day the actual procedure that the rioters were trying to interfere with. It wouldn't have been possible if the Capitol had truly been sacked. But that's what people say. Everything is now carried out to the most extreme language possible. And, you know, people, and, and the result in the country is, and I see this all the time in, in, on Twitter and elsewhere, is people are worked up into a lather about these things. Oh, and, over and, everything. You know, a lot of them believe it. Yeah, and, and, and it just shifts. You know, if, if this vote happens and it fails, as expected, they'll be the next thing that the left decides they want to do, and they'll come around and everyone will work themselves up into the same sort of psycho- psychosis on this. And it's, it gets kind of hard for people to differentiate between stuff that actually matters and stuff that's just some sort of passing weird phenomenon or, or curiosity or obsession that will just be fleeting. I don't think it does any great service to our polity, and we're seeing the results of it all the time. And, you know, back to the media, Britt, because the, the trust in the news media continues to fall, and I think for good reason. I see, I believe from some of your tweets, that you followed this very bizarre story from the Supreme Court and this longtime Supreme Court correspondent at NPR, uh, Nina Totenberg is her name, I believe, who had reported that Justice Sotomayor was not participating in oral arguments and was not coming in person to that or to the you know the conference of the justices because uh, she has an underlying health condition and Justice Gorsuch refused to wear a mask. Chief Justice Roberts asked them all to wear masks, but Gorsuch refused, and Sotomayor had asked Gorsuch to put on a mask, and he wouldn't do it, so she felt like her health was at risk, and so she isn't showing up, and she's doing everything virtually. Now, we could have a conversation about these are all fully vaccinated, boosted people, and so, you know, what does that say, if this were true? And are the masks actually helpful? There's a lot of data now that with Omicron and masks, it's basically totally useless. Setting all that aside, there were... Other folks who saw that report and, and heard that anecdote and said, there's something off about that. That doesn't sound like Gorsuch. That, that seems a little strange. A lot of people, journalists in particular, were extremely invested in this story. What an a-hole this Gorsuch is. Look at these crazy anti-science people willing to endanger their own colleagues. They had a field day with this scoop for about 24 hours and then the reporting started to come out, including from our own Shannon Bream, that this was not the case. This did not happen. No such request was made or denied. Then this extraordinary statement from Gorsuch and Sotomayor, a joint statement saying that they were surprised by that report because it's not true. And then you had journalists still saying, clinging to this story because it had enough truthiness it rang true to what they wanted to hear in their left-wing ears so even though you had both justices involved denying it on the record they were still believing this now discredited scoop and doing so publicly on twitter then the chief justice put out a statement saying the part of me in this story also isn't true i didn't ask or tell people to wear masks this is false and and the strange obsession with some journalist Brit persists all the way to this hour where you have three justices including the chief on the record saying this is wrong the reporter who is well known to be a leftist got it wrong but I guess the, the narrative and the larger truth is too delicious for them to actually let go of and it's like they are just shredding their own credibility and parading their conspiratorial thinking in public I 
guess, assuming that there will be no consequence for them professionally aside from a loss, a further loss of credibility. Well, what's critical about that, too, Guy, was that the chief justice came out and denied it because NPR had not, never quite said that Justice Sotomayor asked Justice Gorsuch to wear a mask. Uh, it's, it, right, that was inferred was by that, many. That, uh, well, that's right, but the story said that the chief justice had made the request to all justices. And when that was denied, the story really had basically collapsed. And there was absolutely no basis for clinging to it, but but some still are. I see it out there, but we haven't really yet heard now from from NPR since the Chief Justice's denial. And I I can't imagine what they're going to say. It may be that they'll come out as as journalists, journalistic organizations sometimes do when a story is under attack and say we stand by our sources. But remember, we now have three on the record comments from justices uh, of differing persuasions uh, denying this story against an anonymous source or sources. Uh, reporting to NPR. Uh, Nina Totenberg has been up there for a long time, and she's done a lot of accurate reporting through the years. She's always leaned left, that's for sure. This looks like a real stinker of a bad story. It'll be very interesting to see uh, how this plays out in in terms of how NPR responds, and also how CNN, which is which picked up on the story and claimed to have confirmed it, uh, what they say about it, because they're well, they're quite invested in this story as well. Yeah, but that's the thing, Britt. How many times in recent years in particular can we count off the top of our heads these big, you know, mainstream journalistic enterprises breathlessly coming out with some uh, salacious scoop, then a bunch of people say, oh, yes, we can confirm, dot, 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 and here we have on-the-record denials from all of the justices involved themselves, which is a very rare thing for them to comment on news cycles at all, but they all felt compelled to do it, and the media said, oh, yes, we've confirmed this. You have journalists saying, uh, we don't believe, like they're, they're sort of insinuating that the justices are now lying to us. It's a very weird thing, and it, this is not new. You know, d- during a lot of the Russia stuff, we saw this play out, and then it would eventually crumble down the road, and by then it was, you know, maybe they'd issue a little correction, maybe a slap on the wrist, maybe nothing at all, because it was on to the next thing, and the next outrage, and the next you know, to borrow a phrase, piece of fake news. Well, this is, the list is really very long, going back a number of years, of stories that have blown up that were, that were reported uh, uh, by the mainstream media and turned out to be false. And the, the loss of credibility that is reflected in public opinion surveys and the rest of it is testament to the fact that people have noticed this. And the media stands at low ebb. Um, but a lot of things have changed in the media. And one of them, Guy, is the old business model, which was you wanted the largest possible, widest possible circulation for your reporting that you could get because that's how you made money. The bigger your circulation, the bigger your viewership, the bigger your listenership, the more advertising dollars flowed in and, and, the, and the more successful your business was. That's changed now. A lot of this has to do with circulation in a way that didn't in, the, in a different way because people are now paying up for online subscriptions to the New York Times and, and the other major newspapers. That's a much more important source of revenue. And, 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 and newspapers that used to depend on local advertising are now depending on national online circulation. Certainly that's true of the New York Times. It's true to some extent of the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, same thing. And it's the fees for subscription that, that, that are now a much more important important source of revenue. So these newspapers 
can appeal to a niche audience as long as it's a national niche audience. Because a national niche audience, small in percentage terms of the whole country, may still be large enough to make quite a profit. And that's part of what we're seeing. And the result, I think, is that people are appealing, these, these news organizations are appealing to niches of a certain political persuasion, and they're doing very well doing it financially. Yeah, and I mean, the newsrooms are run by those niches increasingly. And so it's just sort of this this echo chamber under the under the banner of a brand built over many many years, and in some cases it's pretty disturbing to see what's happening to the basic tenets of journalism. And it was not a banner day, let's put it that way, or week for journalism in this country. We haven't had one actually in a while. Come to think of it, Britt Hume, senior political analyst here at Fox. Britt, we always appreciate your time, your insights. We will talk soon. I hope. Thank you, Guy. All the best. Brett Hume on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So over on the other side of the Atlantic, U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is really embattled right now. Calls for resignation. He gave a speech in Prime Minister's questions today, basically announcing the lifting of the mask mandate across the whole country. Listen to this, cut 19. Having looked at the data carefully, the cabinet concluded that once regulations lapse, the government will no longer mandate the wearing of face masks anywhere. From tomorrow, we will no longer require face masks in classrooms, and the Department, and the department for Education will shortly remove national guidance uh, on their use in communal areas and they were already not having a lot of face masks in classrooms over there they're going to get rid of them entirely and the mask mandates across the country going away in the uk based on the data i wonder if that will follow here in the united states live from the most powerful city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative kai benson show A brand new hour on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. Fox News alert as we get going here. The Dow closes way down, 339 points today, ending at 35,029. Another Fox News alert. President Biden is speaking at the White House. Looks like he's in the East Room. He will be taking questions. His first formal press conference in 78 days, his first one solo here at the White House since last March. He's given some opening remarks. It appears off of a teleprompter where he is reading through some of what he says are the successes and achievements of his administration over his first nearly one year in office. He does concede that there are lingering frustrations and fatigue among the American people, largely due to coronavirus and the pandemic. But he says that... Uh, We're turning the corner here and things are getting better. With that, the president is still speaking. This is uh, what he wants to convey on his own terms to the public before he starts taking questions from journalists. Let's listen live. This is the White House right now across town, President Joe Biden. I encourage the states and school districts that use the funding to protect our children and keep our schools open. Use it. The COVID-19 is not going to give up and accept things uh, you know, it's just it's, it's not going to go away immediately. But I'm not going to give up. 
and accept things as they are now. Some people may call what's happening now the new normal. I call it a job not yet finished. It will get better. We're moving toward a time when COVID-19 won't disrupt our daily lives. Where COVID-19 won't be a crisis, but something to protect against and a threat. Look, we're not there yet, but we will get there. Now, the second challenge we're facing are prices. COVID-19 has created a lot of economic complications, including rapid price increases across the world economy. People see it at the gas pumps, the grocery stores, and elsewhere. So here's what we're going to do. A critical job in making sure that the elevated prices don't become entrenched rests with the Federal Reserve, which has a dual mandate, full employment and stable prices. The Federal Reserve provided extraordinary support during the crisis for the previous year and a half. Given the strength of our economy and the pace of recent price increases, it's appropriate, as the federal chairman, Chairman Powell, the Fed Chairman Powell has indicated, to recalibrate the support that is now necessary. I respect the Fed's, the Fed's independence, and I've nominated five superb individuals to serve on the Federal Board of Governors, men and women, from a variety of ideological perspectives. They're eminently qualified, historically diverse, and have earned bipartisan praise. And I call on the United States Senate to confirm them without any further delay. And here at the White House, and for my friends in Congress, the best thing to tackle high prices is a more productive economy with greater capacity to deliver goods and services to the American people. And a growing economy where folks have more choices and more small businesses compete and where more goods can get to market faster and cheaper. I've laid out a three-part plan to do just that. First, fix the supply chain. COVID-19 has had a global impact on the economy. When a factory shuts down in one part of the world, shipments to shops and homes and businesses all over the world are disrupted. COVID-19 has compounded that many times over. A couple of months ago, in this very room, we talked and we heard dire warnings about how the supply chain problems could create a real crisis around the holidays. So we acted. We brought together business and labor. And that much-predicted crisis did not occur. 99% of the packages were delivered on time, and shelves were stocked. And notwithstanding the recent storms that have impacted many parts of our country, the share of goods in stock at stores is 89% now, which is barely changed from the 91% before the pandemic. I often see empty shelves being shown on television. 89% are full, which is only a few points below what it was before the pandemic. But our work's not done. My infrastructure law will supercharge your effort upgrading everything from roads and bridges to ports and airports, railways and transit, to make the economy move faster and reduce prices for families. Second thing, my Build Back Better plan will address the biggest cost of working families face every day. No other plan will do more to lower the cost for American families. It cuts the cost of, for child care. Many families... So he's pushing Build Back Better here, folks, uh, which is dead, right? It doesn't have the votes, I mean, they might get back to smaller pieces of it at some point, but 
to be touting Build Back Better is a strange choice because that legislation, as it has passed out of the House, for example, is not going to become law anytime soon. So that's not really a solution. I also think trying to pretend like, oh, the empty grocery shelves that people are seeing isn't really that prevalent and it's not that different than pre-pandemic times, that, that feels very much like gaslighting. I mean, you'll get occasional disruptions and shortages, nothing like what we've seen in recent weeks and months. So, I mean, he can sort of try to spin some of this stuff and put a happier face on it and say it's not really as bad as you might think. The problem is the American people are seeing it, which is why the right track, wrong track numbers are where they are. And it's why this guy's approval rating is rough. I mean, there are now three consecutive polls in the last three days that have his disapproval rating for President Biden overall at 56%. And it's a lot worse on the economy and things like inflation. He's talking about wages being up. So for the first time in a long time, well, no, they actually were up in 2019 in the bustling Republican Trump tax cut deregulation economy is when wages really started to grow, unlike under the policies of Barack Obama and Joe Biden the previous eight years. But, you know, he's saying, oh, you know, we're we're coming back. We're doing these things. His economic and inflation numbers are terrible, just terrible in the polls. 56% overall disapproval in three consecutive polls, and now his real clear politics approval average is hovering around 40%. And it's not like what we're hearing here from the president, because he's just reading a speech with all the talking points, which is why I'm talking over it. He hasn't started taking the questions yet. We've heard it all before. He said all of these things before. This is not novel. It's a repackaging and rewarming of things he's already said, including talking about Build Back Better, what he wants to do under Build Back Better, a bill that has been jettisoned in the U.S. Senate because it doesn't have enough votes to pass. And it's unbelievably wasteful. Because the last thing that they passed, $2 trillion of COVID relief, we know how wasteful that was given the fact that they didn't have testing ready for the huge Omicron issue and the latest variant that they also claimed, oh, we had no idea that was coming. So, I mean, it's, it's just the same old stuff over and over from him. He seems to give these, speech every, these speeches every few weeks from the White House or somewhere else where it's usually in the middle of the afternoon. He comes out, he gives some four-point plan, he's working on stuff, and then people look around and it doesn't really feel like he's uh, on top of things. Looks like he's wrapping up his prepared remarks. He will be taking questions as our understanding. Let's go back to the White House Live. Against the American people or America. I believe that more than ever today. We've seen the grit and determination in the American people this past year. But the best days of this country are still ahead of us, not behind us. Now, I'm happy to take questions. Yes. Thank you, Mr. President. I know some of my colleagues will get into some specific issues, but I wanted to zoom out on your first year in office. Inflation is up. Uh, Your signature domestic legislation is stalled in Congress. In a few hours from now, the Senate, uh, an effort in the Senate to deal with voting rights and voting, uh, voting reform legislation is going to fail. COVID-19 is still taking the lives of 1,500 Americans every day. And the nation's divisions are just as raw as they were a year ago. Did you overpromise to the American public what you could achieve in your first year in office? And how do you plan to course correct going forward? Why are you such an optimist? Look, I didn't overpromise. And what I have probably... Uh, outperform what anybody thought would happen. 
the fact of the matter is that uh, we're in a situation where uh, we have made enormous progress. You mentioned the number of deaths from COVID. Well, it was. Uh, Wait, did he say he just he's outperformed expectations? Did I hear that right? All right, back to the president. Look, um, I didn't overpromise, but I think if you take a look at what we've been able to do, uh, you'd have to acknowledge we made enormous progress. But one of the things that I think is something that uh, one thing I haven't been able to do so far is get my Republican friends to get in the game of making things better in this country. For example, I was reading the other day and I, had, I wrote the quote down so I don't misquote him. A quote from Senator Sununu when he decided that he wasn't going, excuse me, Governor Sununu, when he decided he wasn't going to run for the Senate in New Hampshire. Here's what he said. They were all, for the most quote, they were all, for the most part, content with the speed at which they weren't doing anything. It was very clear that we just had to hold the line for two years. Okay, so I'm just going to be a roadblock for the next two years? That's not what I do, Sununu said. He went on to say it bothered me that they were okay with that. Then he goes on to say, I said, okay, so we're not going to get stuff done if we win the White House back, if we win the White House back. Why didn't we do anything in 2017 and 2018? And then he said, how the Republican Sununu spoke to answer the challenge? He said, crickets, yeah, crickets. They had no answer. I did not anticipate that there'd be such a stalwart effort to make sure that the most important thing was that President Biden didn't get anything done. Think about this. What are Republicans for? What are they for? Name me one thing they're for. And so the problem here is that I think what's happens, what I have to do in the, in the change in, in the tactic, if you will, I have to make clear to the American people what we are for. We passed a lot. We passed a lot of things that people don't even understand what's all that's in it, understandably. Remember when we passed the Affordable Care Act and everybody thought that, uh, you know, it really was getting pummeled and beaten. And it wasn't until after we're out of office and that next campaign, when uh, that off-year campaign, and uh, I went into a whole, I wasn't in office anymore, we went a whole bunch of districts campaigning for Democrats and Republican districts who said they wanted to do away with, with uh, health care, with Obamacare. And I started pointing out that if you did that, pre-existing conditions would no longer be covered. And they said, huh? We didn't know that. We didn't know that. And guess what? We won over 38 seats because we had explained to the people exactly what in fact, had passed. Now, one of the things that I remember saying, and I'll end this, I remember saying to President Obama when he passed the Affordable Care Act, I said, you ought to take a victory lap. And he said, there's so many things going on, we don't have time to take a victory lap. As a consequence, no one knew what the detail of the legislation was. They don't know a lot of the detail of what we pass. So the difference is, I'm going to be out on the road a lot, making the case around the country with my colleagues who are up for re-election and others, making the case of what we did do and what we want to do, what we need to do. And so I don't think I've overpromised at all, and I'm going to stay on this track. You know, one of the things that uh, 
I remember, and I'll end this, with, uh, I was talking with, uh, you know, uh, Jim Clyburn, who was a great help to me in the campaign in South Carolina. And Jim said, and when he endorsed me, and there was a, there was a clip on television in the last couple of days of, of Jim, and it said that we want to make things accessible and affordable for all Americans. That's health care. That's education. That's prescription drugs. That's making sure you have access, access to all the things that everybody else has. We can afford to do that. We, can aff- we can't afford not to do it. So I tell my Republican right, So friends, President Biden's saying he's outperformed expectations and his one failure is not getting Republicans to be Democrats. And he just didn't anticipate that the Republicans would be opposing him so much, even though they have worked with him on some things. They oppose a lot of the radical stuff that he's doing, the destructive stuff that he wants, in a town that is right now completely run by the Democrats. Democrats have it all. And Biden's big takeaway from his first year in office is, oh, it's the minority opposition. That's really the problem here. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. That's definitely it, Mr. President. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll uh, continue with our live coverage of this press conference at the White House with President Biden on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. We're watching live as President Biden is taking questions at the White House. He was just asked, will the midterm elections be fair and legitimate if the Democrats' uh, federal takeover scheme doesn't pass? And he said it depends. Sounds like he's casting aspersions and doubts about our process and our democracy, which I thought was a very, very bad thing. Let's listen live. Few schools are closing. Over 95% are still open. So you all phrase the questions when people, I don't think it's deliberate on your part, but you phrase the question when anybody watches this on television. My God, there must be all those schools must be closing. What are we going to do? 95% are still open. Number one. Number two, the idea that parents don't think it's important for their children to be in school, and teachers know it as well, that's why we made sure that we had the ability to provide the funding through the Recovery Act, through the act that we, the, the, the first act we passed, to be able to make sure schools were able to be safe. So we have new ventilation systems available for them. We have the way they handle, they scrub down laboratories and, and I mean, the laboratories kids go to to go to the bathroom, uh, cafeterias, buses, etc. That All that money's there. There's billions of dollars made available. It's there. Uh, not every school district has used it as well as it should be used, but it's there. And so in addition to that, there is now another $10 billion for testing of students in the schools. So I, I think as time goes on, it's much more likely you're going to see that number go back up from 95%, back up to 98 99%. But the, the outfit, the individuals of the district that says we're not going to be open is always going to get, and I'm not being critical of any of you, it's always going to get front page. It's always going to be the top of the news. But let's put it in perspective. 95, as high as 98% of the schools in America are open functioning and capable of doing the job. Um, uh, How about uh, 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 Jen Epstein, uh, Bloomberg? 
Mr. President, thank you. The next question is coming up, and we're up on a break here in a second. We will continue to follow this. I just want to point out, he's talking about, oh, you know, all these schools are open. Well, they weren't for a year because of his party and his buddies in the teachers' unions. That's a lot of harm, and we've seen more of that harm inflicted again in some of the bluest places in the country. Did you hear any condemnation of those terrible decisions from President Biden there? No, he wants to take credit for schools being open. What about last year? What about what just happened in Chicago? Sidestepped. Back with more of this on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's The Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. That is our website. Fox News alert. President Bob White House taking questions from the press. During the break, he was asked about Russia. He said he thinks that NATO will be united on very, very tough sanctions if Putin were to invade Ukraine. But then he sort of qualified saying it kind of depends on what he does, Putin. And if it's just a minor incursion, what is he talking about? Is he telling Putin a minor incursion to sort of be less bad or there'll be a less united front if he were to do that? That might have been an inadvertent invitation in some ways. I see some foreign policy experts on social media just totally flummoxed and gobsmacked by that answer. He's just been asked another question, this from the New York Times, also about Russia. Let's go back live to the White House and listen to the presidential press conference, live. The Soviet Union has been split. Um, But think about what he has. He has eight time zones, a burning tundra that will not freeze again naturally, a situation where he has a lot of oil and gas, but he is trying to find his place in the world between... China and the West. And so I'm not so sure that he has uh, David, I'm not so sure he has uh, is certain what he's going to do. My guess is he will move in. He has to do something. And by the way, I've indicated to him the two things he said to me that he wants, guarantees on. One is Ukraine will never be part of NATO. And two, that NATO or the there will not be strategic weapons stationed in Ukraine. Well, we can work out something on the second piece, pretending what he does along the Russian line as well, the Russian border in the European area of Russia. On the first piece, we have a number of treaties internationally and in Europe that suggest that you get to choose who you want to be with. But the likelihood that Ukraine is going to join NATO in the near term is not very likely based on much more work they have to do in terms of democracy and a few other things going on there. And whether or not the major allies in the West would vote to bring Ukraine in right now. So there's room to work if he wants to do that. But I think, as usual, he's going to... Well, I probably shouldn't go any further. I think it will hurt him badly. Sounds like you are um, offering some way out here, some off-ramp. And it sounds like what it is is at least an informal assurance that NATO is not going to uh, take in Ukraine any time in the next few decades. And it sounds like you're saying we would never put nuclear weapons there. He also wants us to move all of our nuclear weapons out of Europe and not have troops rotating through the old Soviet bloc. Do you think there's space for that there? No, no, there's not space for that. 
we won't permanently station, but the idea we're not going to, we're going to actually increase troop presence in Poland and Romania, et cetera, if in fact he moves. Because we have a sacred obligation in Article 5 to defend those countries. They are part of NATO. We don't have that obligation relative to Ukraine, although we have great concern about what happens in Ukraine. Thank you. Um, Maureen, uh, USA Today. Thank you, Mr. President. I want to follow up on your comment on uh, Build Back Better and also ask you a question about the pandemic. You said that you're confident you can pass big chunks of Build Back Better this year. Does that wording mean that you are thinking about, you're looking at breaking the uh, package up into individual portions? And uh, then on the pandemic, now that the Supreme Court has blocked the vaccination or test rule for larger businesses, are you reconsidering whether to require vaccines for domestic flights as a way to boost vaccination rates? Uh, no, look, uh, first of all, uh, on the last part of the question, the Supreme Court decision, I think, was a mistake, but you still see thousands and thousands of people who work for major corporations having to be tested as a consequence of the decision made by the corporation, not by the standard I set that, that is there. I think you'll see that increase, not decrease, number one. What was the first part of your question? Uh, on your, your comment that you made, that you're confident yes. that major chunks of Build Back yes. Better can pass, are you breaking it up? Does that yes. It, well, uh, it's clear to me that, uh, um, that we're going to have to uh, probably uh, break it up. Um, I think that we can get, and I've been talking to a number of my colleagues on the Hill, I think it's, it's clear that we would be able to get support for the, for the $500 plus billion for uh, energy and the environmental issues that are there, uh, number one. Uh, number two, uh, I know that uh, the two people who've opposed on the Democratic side, at least, um, support a number of the things that are in there. For example, Joe Manchin strongly supports early education, three and four years of age, strongly supports that. Um, there is strong support for, I think, uh, a number of uh, the way in which to pay for these, uh, uh, pay for this proposal. So I think there is, I'm not going to, I'm not going to negotiate against myself as to what should and shouldn't be in it, but I think we can break the package up get as much as we can now and come back and fight for the rest later. Um, uh, Ken, Wall Street Journal, Ken Thomas. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. I wanted to ask you about the economy. As you said earlier, Americans are feeling the squeeze yeah. of inflation. Uh, oil prices have, have been at about a seven-year high recently. How long should Americans expect to face higher prices when they're at the grocery store, when they're at the gas pump? Is this something that they're going to see into the summer, into next fall? Or, and, and separately, you, know, you talk about the importance of the Fed, but isn't that an acknowledgement that you're limited in what you can do? If, you, if, if, if you're relying on the Fed to make decisions and you're unable to get a Build Back Better proposal through, aren't you s simply limited in what you can do to deal with inflation? Well, look, uh, as you know, um, the inflation has everything to do with the supply chain. And uh, I think what you're seeing is that we've been able to make progress on speeding up the access to materials. Uh, for, for example, 
one-third of the, of the uh, uh, increase in cost of living is cost of automobiles. The reason automobiles have skyrocketed in prices. So he's talking about the economy right now and inflation and other things. Just a quick note, he just recently referred to anyone who opposes his plan on killing the filibuster and taking over elections, which has a lot of unpopular stuff in that plan, is like Bull Connor or Jefferson Davis. Is that the type of thing that anyone in the media will press him on specifically? What about the voting laws in his home state of Delaware, for example? Will we get any question? Has he ever been asked about that? I'd be very curious uh, to know. I'd also like to hear him pressed on photo ID and other things that he's treating as neo-segregation or Jim Crow 2.0 or whatever the buzzword is. Uh, there could be some pretty pointed questions on this stuff. We haven't heard it yet so far. We'll keep listening. When I was able to convince everyone from including China, India, a number of other countries to agree with us to go into their version of, the, of, the, of their petroleum reserve to release more into the market. So that that brought down the price about 12, 15 cents a gallon, some places, some places more. There's going to be a, there's going to be a reckoning along the line here as to whether or not we're going to continue to see oil prices continue to go up in ways that are going up now relative to what is going to, what impact that's going to have on the producers. And so um, it's going to be hard I think that's the place where most middle-class people, work-class people get hit the most. They pull up to a pump and all of a sudden, instead of paying $2.40 a gallon, they're paying $5 a gallon. That's going to be really difficult. But so we're going to continue to work on trying to increase oil supplies that are available. And I think there's ways in which we can be of some value added in terms of the price of gas, natural gas and the like, to take the burden off the European countries that... Uh, are now totally dependent on, on Russia. But it's going to be hard. It's going to be very hard. But I think that we have to deal with, for example, like I said, you have a circumstance where people are paying more for a pound of hamburger meat than they ever paid. Well, one of the reasons for that is you don't have that many folks out there that are the ones that are got the big four controlling it all. And so you're going to see more and more, we're going to move on this competition piece to allow more and more smaller operations to come in and be able to engage in providing, buying and providing the access to much cheaper uh, uh, meat uh, than, uh, than exists now. But it's going to be a haul. Now, and as you, I assume the reason you said if I can't get Build Back Better is relates to what those uh, 17 Nobel laureate economists said, that if in fact we could pass it, it would actually lower the impact on inflation, reduce inflation over time, et cetera. So there's a lot we have to do. It's not going to be easy, but I think we can get it done. But it's going to be painful for a lot of people in the meantime. That's why the single best way, the single best way to take the burden off middle class and working class folks is to pass the Build Back Better piece that are things that they're paying a lot of money for now. If you get to trade off higher gases, you're putting up with higher price of hamburgers and, and gas versus whether or not you're going to have to, you're going to be able to pay for uh, education and or um, uh, uh, child care and the like. I think most people would make the trade. Their bottom line would be better in middle class households. But it's going to be hard and it's going to take a lot of work. Paul, oh, sir. 
Uh, you mentioned China. Do you think the time has come to begin lifting some of the tariffs on Chinese imports, or is there a need for China to, to make do on some of its commitments in the phase one agreement? Some business groups would like you to begin raising, uh, lifting up those uh, tariffs on China. Well, I know that, and that's why my trade rep is working on that right now. The answer is uncertain. It's uncertain. I'd like to be able to be in a position where I could say they're meeting the commitments or more of their commitments and be able to lift some of it. But we're not there yet. Um, Nancy, uh, CBS. Thank you so much, Mr. President. This afternoon, the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said that the midterm elections are going to be a report card on your progress on inflation, border security, and standing up to Russia. Do you think that that's a fair way to look at it? And if so, how do you think that report card looks right now? I think report cards will look pretty good if that's where we're at. But look, the idea that uh, Mitch has been very clear, <laughs> he'd do anything to prevent Biden from being a success. I, I, and I, I get on with Mitch. I actually like Mitch McConnell. We like one another. But he has one straightforward objective. Make sure that there's nothing I do that makes me look good in the, in the mind, in his mind, with the public at large. And that's okay. I'm a big boy. I've been here before. But the fact is that I think that the, uh, I'm happy to debate and have a referendum on how I handle the economy, whether or not I've made progress on, when, look, again, how can I, I'm taking too long answering your questions. I apologize. I think that this, the fundamental question is, what's Mitch for? What's he for on immigration? What's he for? What's he proposing to make anything better? What's he for dealing with Russia? It's different than I'm proposing than many of his He's pretending that Republicans friends. don't have positions on things. Republicans want a border wall. They want return in Mexico or return to Mexico or stay in Mexico enshrined and enforced. They want more Border Patrol agents. They want a president who won't lie about Border Patrol agents and fake whips. He's pretending like they don't have any positions on things. They do. He just disagrees with them. Also, his party's in charge of everything. The president goes on. He's gone. So, I mean, it's, it's just, it's going to take time. And again, I go back to... I go back to Governor Sununu's quote. How long, I mean, a rhetorical question. I don't, I know this is not fair to ask the press a question. I'm not asking you. But think about, did you ever think that one man out of office could intimidate an entire party where they're unwilling to take any vote contrary to what he thinks should be taken for fear of being defeated in a primary. I've had five Republican senators talk to me, bump into me, quote unquote, or sit with me, who've told me that they agree with whatever I'm talking about for them to do. But Joe, if I do it, I'm going to defeat it in a primary. We've got to break that. It's got to change. And I doubt you're all... 
President Biden live at the White House taking questions from the press. Haven't been that tough so far. I'm sure you're shocked. We will continue to monitor, come back live. When we return, it's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fox News alert. President Joe Biden is at the White House. He's taking questions from the press. We are listening live. Let's go back to the East Room. Most important thing to do. Big nations can't bluff. Number one. Number two, the idea that we would do anything to split NATO, which would be a profound impact on one of, I think, profound impact on one of Putin's objectives is to weaken NATO, would be a big mistake. So the question is, if it's a something significantly short of uh, a significant invasion, or not even significant, just major military forces coming across, for example, uh, it's one thing to determine that if they continue to uh, to use cyber efforts. Well, we, we can respond the same way with cyber. Um, they have FSB people in Ukraine now trying to undermine uh, the solidarity within Ukraine about Russia and to try to promote Russian interest. Um, but it's very important that, uh, that we keep everyone in NATO on the same page. And that's what I'm spending a lot of time doing. And there are differences. Our differences in NATO as to what countries are willing to do depending on what happens, the degree to which they're able to go. And I want to be clear with you. The serious imposition of sanctions relative to dollar transactions and other things are things that are going to have a negative impact on the United States as well as a negative impact on the economies of Europe as well. A devastating impact on Russia. And so i got to make sure everybody's on the same page as we move along. I think we will if there's something that is that where there's Russian forces crossing the border, killing Ukrainian fighters, etc. I think that changes everything. But it depends on what he does as to actually what extent we're going to be able to get total unity on the, Rus- on the uh, NATO front. If I may ask a quick one on Iran, I just wanted to get your sense of whether the Vienna talks are making it. Nothing on Afghanistan notice. A lot of other stuff. Nothing on Afghanistan. Nothing on the lies he told and the race baiting down in Georgia recently. Fact checking there. Uh, Pretty softball stuff so far for President Biden. We're up on the top of the hour break. We will keep watching, see if he keeps taking questions. And if he's still going, we will get to that live on the other side. It's the Guy Benson Show. Full analysis and breakdown upcoming. That's straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the final hour, happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day here at the program, GuyBensonShow.com. Final hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. Fox News alert as we enter our final hour. President Biden is still going at the White House. He has finally been asked about his unbelievably divisive 
and dishonest speech in Georgia and his promises of unity. And that juxtaposition, he's claiming he wasn't saying that people would be like Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis if they voted the way he doesn't want them to vote. But now he's kind of saying he'd be voting with that side. It's very confusing spin. We all heard what he said. Let's go back to the White House and listen live. The answer is, based on some of the stuff we've got done, I'd say yes, but it's not nearly unified as it should be. Look, I still contend, and I know you'll have a right to judge me by this, I still contend that... Unless you can reach consensus in a democracy, you cannot sustain the democracy. And so this is a real test. Whether or not my, uh, my, my, uh, my counterpart in China is right or not, when he says autocracies are the only thing that are going to prevail because democracies take too, too long to make decisions and countries are too divided. I believe we're going through one of those inflection points in history that occurs every several generations or even more than that, even more time than that, where things are changing almost regardless of any particular policy. The world's changing in big ways. We're going to see, if you've heard me say this before, we're going to see more change in the next 10 years than we've saw in the last 50 years because of technology, because of fundamental alterations in alliances that are occurring, not because of any one individual, just because of the nature of things. And so I think you're going to see an awful lot of transition. And the question is, can we keep up with it? Can we maintain the democratic institutions that we have, not just here, but around the world, to be able to generate democratic consensus on how to proceed? It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. But it requires, it requires leadership to do it. And I'm not giving up on the prospect of being able to do that. Thank you. Mr. President. Thank you, sir. There are deep questions among Americans about the competence of government. From the messy rollout of 5G this week to the Afghanistan withdrawal, to testing on COVID. What have you done to restore Americans' faith in the competence of government? And are you satisfied by the view of the competence of your government? Look, let's take Afghanistan. I know you all would like to focus on that, which is legitimate. We were spending a trillion dollars a week. I mean, a billion dollars a week in Afghanistan for 20 years. Raise your hand if you think anyone was going to be able to unify Afghanistan under one single government. It's been the graveyard of empires for a solid reason. It is not susceptible to unity, number one. So the question was, do I continue to spend that much money per week in the state of Afghanistan, knowing that the idea that being able to succeed other than sending more body bags back home is highly, highly unusual. My dad used to have an expression. He'd say, son, if everything's equally important to you, nothing's important to you. There is no way to get out of Afghanistan after 20 years easily. 
not possible no matter when you did it. And I make no apologies for what I did. I have a great concern for the women and men who were blown up on the line at the airport by a terrorist attack against them. But the military will acknowledge, and I think you will, who know a lot about foreign policy, that had we stayed and I had not pulled those troops out, we would be asked to put somewhere between 20 and 50,000 more troops back in. Because the only reason more Americans weren't being killed than others is because the last president signed an agreement to get out by May the 1st. And so everything was copacetic. Had we not gotten out, and the acknowledgement is we'd be putting a lot more forces in. Now, am I, do I feel badly what's happening to, as a consequence of the incompetence of the Taliban? Yes, I do. But I feel badly also about the fistulas that are taking place in eastern Congo. I feel badly about a whole range of things around the world that we can't solve every problem. And so I don't view that as a competence issue. The issue of whether or not there's competence in terms of whether or not we're dealing with 5G or not, we don't deal with 5G. The fact is that you had two enterprises, two private enterprises, that had one promoting 5G and the other one are airlines. They're private enterprises. They have government regulation, admittedly. And so what I've done is pushed as hard as I can to have 5G folks hold up and abide by what was being requested by the airlines until they could more modernize over the years so that 5G would not interfere with the potential of the landing. So any tower, any 5G tower within a certain number of miles from the airport should not be operative. And that's, and so I understand, but anything that happens that's consequential is viewed as the government's responsibility. I get that. Am I satisfied with the way in which we have dealt with uh, um, COVID and all the things that, uh, that, that go along with that? Yeah, I am satisfied. I think we've done remarkably well. You know, the idea that uh, on testing we've done, we should have done it quicker, but we've done remarkable since then. What we have is we have more testing going on than anywhere in the world. And we're going to continue to increase that. Did we have it at the moment exactly when we should have moved? And could we have moved a month earlier? Yeah, we could have. But with everything else that's going on, I don't view that as somehow a mark of incompetence. Look, think of what we did on COVID when, uh, when we were pushing on uh, AstraZeneca to provide more vaccines. Well, guess what? They didn't have the machinery to be able to do it. So I physically went to Michigan, stood there in a factory with the head of, the, uh, of uh, um, AstraZeneca and said, we'll provide the machinery for you. This is what we'll do. We'll help you do it so that you can produce this vaccine more rapidly. I think that's pretty hands-on stuff. We also said right now, when people, the hospitalizations are, are, are overrunning hospitals and you have docs and nurses out because of COVID, they have COVID. We put thousands of people back in, in those hospitals. Look at all the, marine, all the military personnel we have there, first responders. 
Nobody has ever organized, nobody has ever organized a strategic operation to get as many shots in arms by opening clinics and keeping and being able to get so many people vaccinated. What I'm doing now is not just getting significant amounts of of vaccines to the rest of the world, but they now need the mechanical way is how they get shots in arms. So we're providing them to know how to do that. Now, should everybody in America know that? No, they don't necessarily know that. They're just trying to figure out how to put three squares on the table and stay safe. But so I, 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 I do think the, the place where I was a little disappointed, I wish we could have written it differently, is when we did the legislation to provide the funding for COVID and the money we provided for the states to be able to deal with keeping schools open. Some of them didn't do a very good job. Some are still holding the money. I don't have the authority to do anything about that. I think that's not particularly competent. There's things that could and should have been done. They could have moved faster. So I, uh, um, I understand the frustration. You know, I, I remember, uh, um, I think it was, uh, I forget which cabinet member saying to Barack Obama where something was going on. And he said, well, you're going to be sure, Mr. President, of the millions of employees you have out there, somebody's screwing up right now. Somebody's screwing up. So, it, you know, it's just a, but I think you have to look at things that we used to look at on balance. What is the trajectory of the country? Is it moving in the right direction now? I don't know how we can say it's not. I understand the overwhelming frustration, fear, and concern with regard to inflation and COVID. I get it. But the idea, if I told you when we started, I tell you what I'm going to do. First year, I'm going to create over 600 or 6 million jobs. I'm going to get unemployment down to 3.9%. I'm going to generate, and I named it all. You'd look at me like you're nuts. Maybe I'm wrong. President, at least in our recent memory, with as much Washington experience as you entered this office with, but yet after we sit here for more than an hour, I'm not sure I've heard you say if you would do anything differently in the second year of your term. Do you plan to do anything differently? Yeah, look, the thing do you, I have to are do... Are you satisfied with your team here at the White House, sir? I'm satisfied with the team. There's three things I'm going to do differently now that, I will, now that I've gotten the critical crises out of the way in the sense of that move, knowing exactly where we're going. Number one, I'm going to get out of this place more often. I'm going to go out and talk to the public I'm going to do public fora. I'm going to interface with them. I'm going to make the cases what we've already done, why it's important, and what we'll do if what will happen if they support what else I want to do. Number two, I'm bringing in more and more now that I have time. I mean, literally, like like you, it's I'm not complaining. It's you know, 12, 14 hours a day, no complaints. I really mean that sincerely. But now that certain of the big chunks have been put in place and we know the direction, I'm also going to be out there seeking the more advice of experts outside, from academia to editorial writers to think tanks, and I'm bringing them in, just like I did early on, bringing in uh, presidents and historians to get their perspective on what we should be doing, seeking more input, more information, more constructive criticism about what I should and shouldn't be doing. And the third thing that I'm going to be doing a lot more of is being in a situation where I'm able to bring, I'm, I'm going to be deeply involved in the off, these off-year elections. 
We're going to be raising a lot of money. We're going to be out there making sure that we're helping all of those candidates and scores of them have already asked me to come in and campaign with them to go out and make the case in plain, simple language as to what it is we've done, what we want to do, and why we think it's important. How many more hours am I doing this? I'm happy to stick around. Sounds like Peter Ducey's trying to ask a question. He was not on the pre-approved list. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are live. We're watching President Biden still taking questions. He just said he's going to take questions for another 20 minutes. This got pretty angry at being pressed on the Bull Connor comments, shouting, saying that's not what he said. He wasn't comparing them. I mean, we all saw what he said. He invoked those names for a reason. Uh, he, was, he was mad about that. Peter Ducey asked him, why are you yanking the country to the left? He said, I'm not. Then he pointed out that almost every Senate Democrat has voted for every single thing that he's asked for, which seems like a pretty nice soundbite for the Republican Party ahead of the midterm elections. Joining us now is Byron York of the Washington Examiner. As we keep watching, the president will uh, keep track of what he's saying. But, Byron, uh, thanks for standing by with us. Your reaction so far to this press conference from the president? Well, we just actually had some news that you just described, and this defensiveness that he has exhibited about his speech in Atlanta is is not a surprise. I know you were uh, hoping beforehand that someone would press him about this. Yes. And uh, one, of, one of the better questions came right at the end of that just a few seconds ago, which was, well, did you think this would work on Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema? You know, and they, he really got mad about this. But I, I think the bigger picture in this uh, press conference is that the president, uh, it's, it's his one year in office, and he's given himself an A. Um, he's pretty happy with the way he has performed. Uh, when he talked about, uh, he was asked about what he might do differently in this coming year, his second year in office, he said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out more. I'm going to go out and talk to people more. Yes, and uh, campaign he more, he said. Yeah, and then he and he said, "I'm going to bring in more experts, like when I brought in the uh, uh, historians, presidential historians, who all told him that he could be FDR or LBJ. He's going to do more of that, and then he will campaign more. So um, he he didn't say, "I'm just you know, I'm going to try not to stop screwing things up." Uh, he didn't say, "I'm going to try to fix the mistakes I made." Uh, he's given himself a very high grade on his first year in office. He also said earlier in the press conference that, or at least implied, that the upcoming elections may not be legitimate unless the Democrats get this uh, power grab that they want. He was asked to follow up on that, and he started listing sort of vague ways that, in fact, indeed, they may not be legitimate moving forward. He is sort of preemptively, from the presidential podium, casting doubt on the legitimacy of future American elections. I mean, it's, it's a pretty staggering thing. Yeah, it was very striking. He was asked to to detail that because he um, this this goes back to what he said. Remember, he got kind of agitated in the Capitol a few days ago when he said, "Count the vote." It's going to depend on who gets to count the vote. And he repeated that and raised his voice. Um, and I, I think this is you know obviously Joe Biden and Donald Trump do not speak the same way. They're two different people. But this is him saying it's going to be rigged. This election is going to be rigged. And, of course, it would be rigged against uh, 
Democrats in his view. And he really seems to be laying the groundwork for accusing Republicans ahead of time of cheating and, two, explaining uh, any losses that Democrats may suffer. On Russia, Byron, I know it may not be the number one issue for a lot of Americans, but just briefly here, he seemed to say if there's only a minor incursion into Ukraine by the Russians, NATO might not be united in what they do in response. I feel like a cleanup is coming. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, uh, a reporter asked, asked for a cleanup and really didn't get one. Didn't get one, yeah. So they're going to have to, uh, they are going to have to clean up. I mean, but the fact is, this may be one of these cases of Biden being a little more honest than uh, you expect uh, a president to be sometime, because, um, the, you know, the fact is, uh, a minor incursion and a major incursion would probably be two different things to U.S. policymakers, him being at the top of the policymaking pyramid. So... I think it was. Um, I, I think he was basically saying that there are some things that uh, Putin could do that the U.S. would not, you know, react in a particularly um, enraged way. Byron York, our guest here, he is of the Washington Examiner. He writes a newsletter every morning. He's also a Fox News contributor. Byron, always appreciate your time. We are still watching the president. He's still going at the White House. Thanks, Byron. Thanks, guy. More from this press conference from the president when we come back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Live on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. I am Guy Benson. Fox News alert. This is actually surprising on a few levels. First surprise is the president was on time today at 4 o'clock for his press conference. The second surprise is he's still going. And at least according to him, he's going to keep going here for at least a few more minutes, taking questions from the press corps. I would not say this has been a terribly impressive performance by the president. I think there's quite a lot of fodder in here for his opponents. He's gotten angry a few times. He's attempted to spin a few other things. Uh, Let's keep listening here as he is going back and forth with reporters in the East Room at the White House live. I'm going to keep coming back at whatever four I get to be able to try to get chunks of all of that done. Yes, sir. Next man next to you, left. Thank you, Mr. President. My name is Pedro Rojas. I'm with Univision National News. Uh, this is actually my first press conference here. It's good to meet you in person. We always have long press conferences. Awesome. Awesome. I got a couple of questions for you. Number one, uh, you said that you want to convey your message by getting out there in the country. I wonder if you're planning on traveling also to South America and other countries in the, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, given the fact that China has, has gained a lot of influence in the region. And the second question is, what will be your message for residents in this country that are struggling every time they go to the gas station, every time they go to the grocery store and see the prices going high, and the pharmacy? I, I happen to come from South Texas where I saw a lot, of, a lot of people struggling financially in the last few months. And so I think you, I wonder what is the message you want to spread to them? Well, I try to express, I've asked, I try to answer that seven different ways today about how to deal with inflation. Um, But let me uh, answer the first question. I spent a lot of time in South America and in Latin America. When I was vice president, I spent the bulk of my eight years basically in Europe and or in, uh, in Latin America. I'm in contact with the leaders of the countries in South America. We're working closely with making sure that we do everything, for example, with the, uh, uh, to deal with um, helping uh, the countries in question, particularly those in Central America, 
to be able to help them with their ability to deal with the inter the people don't sit around in, in uh, Guatemala and say, I got a great idea. Let's sell everything we have, give the money to a, to a, uh, a coyote, take us across a, a terribly dangerous trip up through Central America and up through Mexico and drop us, sneak us across the border, drop us in the desert. Won't that be fun? People leave because they have real problems. And one of the things I've done when I was a vice president got support with, although I don't have much Republican support anymore, is provide billions of dollars to be able to say to those countries, why are people leaving and how are you going to reform your own system? And that's we've worked on a long time. It still needs a lot more work, and we're focusing on that. I also believe I've spent a lot of time talking about and dealing with policy having to do with Maduro, who is little more than a dictator right now, and the same thing in Chile and, Af and, uh, and not the same thing, but with Chile as well as Argentina. So look, I've, I made a speech a while ago when I was vice president saying that if we were smart, we have an opportunity to make the Western Hemisphere a united, not united, a democratic hemisphere. And we were moving in the right direction. Under, our, under the last administration, the Obama-Biden administration. But so much damage was done as a consequence of the foreign policy decisions the last president made in Latin America, Central America, and South America that we now have, when I call for a summit of the democracies, I call that and a number of nations showed up for this summit of democracy. What is it that's going to allow us to generate, we've actually had a reduction in the number of democracies in the world. And it seems to me there's nothing more important. We used to talk about, when I was a kid in college, about America's backyard. It's not America's backyard. Everything south of the Mexican border is America's front yard. And we're By the way, you're listening to the president live at the White House. Uh, just a little while ago, he was asked about a number of things. He again suggested that perhaps American future elections would not be legitimate if the Democrats don't get to federalize on a party-line basis the election rules. I mean, it's just a gobsmackingly irresponsible thing to say. He's now said it twice in this press conference. He was also asked about bad polling numbers. He said he doesn't believe the polls, which is often what politicians say, often when they're losing, uh, including the, the previous president. That's uh, sort of a familiar refrain there. I do wonder if President Biden, if he doesn't believe the polls, does he believe the double-digit swing in Virginia and New Jersey against his party? I wonder if that's something that he can believe in. All right, back to the president. He's checking his watch. How much longer do I have to do this? I guess he committed for like three or four more minutes, so he's taking more questions. Let's listen. Him. First of all, they weren't nearly as obstructionist as they are now, number one. They stated that, but you had a number of Republicans we work with closely. From John McCain, I mean, a number of Republicans we work closely with. Even back in those days, uh, Lindsey Graham. Um, and so the difference here is there seems to be a desire to work. And I didn't say my agenda. I'm saying, what are they for? What, what is their agenda? They had an agenda back in the administration when the eight years we were president and vice president. But I don't know what their agenda is now. What is it? 
the American public is outraged about the tax structure we have in America. What are they proposing to do about it? Anything? Have you heard anything? I mean, anything. I haven't heard anything. The American public is outraged about the fact that we're uh, the, uh, the, 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 the state of the environment, the vast majority of the public. What have they done to do anything to ameliorate the climate change that's occurring other than to deny it exists? So what I'm saying is the difference between then and now is not only the announcement that was made, anything to stop Barack Obama. I get that part. But what eventually happened, we were able to get some things done. We were able to work through some things. On the stuff that was really consequential in terms of ideologically divisive, it was a real fight. But so, but I don't think there's a time when I, I mean, I wonder what would be the Republican platform right now? What do you think? What do you think their position on taxes are? What do you think their position on, on human rights is? What do you think their position is on whether or not uh, uh, we should, uh, on the, what we should do about the cost of prescription drugs? What do you think? I mean, I, I just, I honest to God don't know what they're for. Yet I know a lot of these senators and congressmen, and I know they do have things they want to support. Whether there's things I want or not. But you don't hear much about that. And every once in a while, when you hear something where there's a consensus, it's important but a small item, and it doesn't get much coverage at all where it occurs. I'm not mean coverage. I mean, there's not much discussion about it. So I just think it's a different, and, and I, I don't know that um, no matter how strongly one supports the Republican and or supports the president, of the, the former president of the United States, I don't know how we can't look at what happened on January 6th and think that's, that's a problem. That's a real problem. One, one more question, uh, Mr. President. Um, By the way, it's a quarter of guys, now, so I'm going to do this. Just let's, If you answer me easy questions, I'll give you quick answers. Uh, there's an increasing concern, I think, among some Democrats that even if schools do continue to open, and I get that most of them are now open, Republicans will weaponize this narrative of you, of you and other leading Democrats allowing them to stay closed in the midterms next year. Uh, and, you know, obviously that issue has a lot of traction with suburban parents, um, as I think what we saw in Virginia. I'm confused by the question. I'm sorry. Well, that could school reopenings or closures become a potent midterm issue for Republicans to win back the suburbs? Oh, I think it could be, but I hope in God that they're, uh, that, look, maybe I'm kidding myself, but as time goes on, the voter who is just trying to figure out, as I said, how to take care of their family, put three squares on the table, stay safe, be able to pay their mortgage or their rent, et cetera, uh, has, is becoming much more informed on the, um, the motives of um, some of the political players and some of the and the political parties. And I think that they are not going to be as susceptible 
to believing some of the outlandish things that have been said and continue to be said. You know, every, every president, not necessarily in the first 12 months, but every president in the first couple of years, most every president, excuse me, of the last presidents, at least four of them, have had polling numbers that are 44% favorable. So it's this idea that, but you all, not you all, but now it is, well, Biden's it. One poll showed him at 33%. The average is 44, 45%. One poll him at 49%. I mean, the idea that... Um, the American public are trying to sift their way through what's real and what's, and what's fake. And I don't think as... Uh, I've never seen a time when the political coverage, the, the choice of what political coverage the voter looks to has as much impact on as what they believe. They go to get reinforced in their views, whether it's uh, MSNBC or whether it's Fox or whatever. I mean, and one of the things I find fascinating that's happening, and you all are dealing with it every day, and it will impact on, on how things move, is that uh, a lot of the speculation and the polling data shows that the, um, that the uh, cables are heading south. They're losing viewership. No? Well, Fox is okay for a while, but it's not gaining. And a lot of the rest are predicted to be not very much in the, in the mix in the next four to five years. I don't know whether that's true or not. But I do know that we have sort of uh, put everybody in, put themselves in certain alleys. And they've decided that, you know, how many people who watch MSNBC also watch Fox, other than they're a politician trying to find out what's going on in both places? How many people, again, I'm no expert in any of this, but the fact is, I think you have to acknowledge that what gets covered now is necessarily a little bit different than what gets covered in the past. I've had a couple, well, I shouldn't get into this, but the nature, not the nature of the way things get covered has, in my observation over the years I've been involved in public life, changed. And it's changed because of everything from a thing called the Internet. It's changed because of the way in which uh, we have self-identified perspectives based on what channel you turn on, what, what, what network you look at, not network, what, what cable you look at. And it's, um, it's never quite been like that. Anyway. On, on behalf of the Correspondents Association, thank you very much for, for, for standing for our questions. We hope the public has found it as enlightening as uh, those of us in the room have. I want to ask you, sir, about <laughs> one of the overriding... I can still stand. It's amazing. Right. We appreciate it. We, we very much do. So uh, the, the question I want to ask you gets to accountability, sir, uh, on one of the top public concerns, of course, which is the coronavirus and the, pu the government's response to it, whether it's Confusion over what style of mask to wear, when to test, 
how to test, where to test. All right, so President Biden now indicating that he might keep asking a few more questions or answering more questions after this, uh, but for now, as we are live on The Guy Benson Show, we will step aside. We will take one last break. Homestretch is next. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show and a Fox News alert. President Biden just now walking away from the podium after nearly two hours. He gave prepared remarks. Then he took questions for the better part of an hour and a half. A lot of word salad at the end there as he was sort of petering out, it seemed. But he took an awful lot of questions. And I would say there will be a couple takeaways. One will be his incursion comments on Ukraine and Russia, which the White House already, you see spokespeople on social media cleaning up after that reaction coming in from Kiev, officials expressing shock that he would say something like suggesting that the world response might depend on whether it's a small incursion or a full invasion. The White House is saying the president clarified that very clearly. Um, he did not. His clarification was was not exactly clarifying. Let's put it that way. You'll also get the fact that he twice, even when challenged a second time, did suggest that American elections may not be legitimate in the future, including the upcoming midterms, if the Democrats aren't allowed to move forward with this blowing up of the filibuster and a huge federal partisan power grab on elections. I mean, that is an exceptionally reckless thing for him to say. We've heard Democrats in the media screaming about the unwillingness to accept election results and that sort of thing. And, you know, when Trump did it, it was bad. Here's Biden preemptively doing it and sowing seeds of doubt about our elections based on a phony crisis and a bunch of lies about the voting laws in places like Georgia or Texas, for example. I think those are pretty significant takeaways. He also said Build Back Better is going to get broken up. Not surprising, but he... Uh, said that out loud. Also, the President of the United States early on said that he believes that he did not overpromise to the American people in terms of defeating the virus, in terms of the economy, in terms of unity. He said, in fact, he has overperformed expectations. President Biden, who has a 40% approval rating, believes that he has overperformed expectations. And when pressed on the polling, he says he doesn't believe the polls, although he cited other polls to justify other things. So I guess he believes some polls. He was asked about a report card from the voters, and he said he believes his report card would be good from the American people. He said that he would be happy to have a debate and a referendum on his handling, for example, of the economy. Well, his approval rating on the economy is even worse than his overall approval. So, and he also said one last point here, Talking about the Democrats in Congress, he got very angry and defensive about his Bull Connor, Jefferson Davis smear, pretending like he didn't really say what he said. Didn't mean it that way. Just saying you're on the side of the traitor segregation. It's not that you are them a ridiculous hair splitting on his part. But he said that almost every Democrat in the Senate has given him everything he wants in terms of voting. And I think the Republican ad makers... And the NRSC and the NR, uh, the RNC should clip that soundbite and use that in ads. All right, back tomorrow for The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening live to this press conference. We'll talk to you then. Have a great night.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.